Lifestyle choices and environmental factors impact your brain health and the physiology and psychology of your mental health. When you're ready to turn your brain on to get your game on, listen to In Your Head Radio. Now here's your host, Lee Richardson. We have got a great show today. I've got Dr. Roseanne, or known as Dr. Rowe. And she's a mental health trailblazer. She's founded the Global Institute of Children's Mental Health. She's changing the way we view and treat children's mental health. And that is so needed today. Forbes magazine has called her a thought leader in children's mental health. Her work has helped thousands reverse the most challenging conditions such as ADHD, anxiety, mood, autism, learning disabilities, Lyme, and PANS, PANDAS, using proven holistic therapies such as neurofeedback, biofeedback, and psychotherapy. She's the author of the first ever book on teletherapy activities for child and adolescent therapists, Teletherapy Toolkit, and It's Gonna Be Okay book. How many times have we needed to hear as parents, It's Gonna Be Okay? She works with kids and families with remote neurofeedback and her Get Unstuck program and Raising Successful Kids Community, which are resources for parents to improve their child's symptoms and develop grit and resilience. She's also featured on dozens of media outlets, Fox, CBS, NBC, Parents, New York Times, and today she's on In Your Head with us. Thank you, Dr. Roseanne, so much for joining us today. Well, I'm so glad to be here, and it's always so amazing to have conversations with people who are so like-minded and believe in the power of these evidence-based holistic therapies because we're both neurofeedback providers. And, you know, it's it's been that's been my biggest challenge is getting the medical community to really embrace the neurofeedback. So I applaud everybody that can create awareness on any level, local, national, that that there are other ways to go about solving these problems. Yeah. And, you know, here's the thing. I mean, this really, you know, I'm on this mission, right, you know, to change the way we view and treat mental health. And, you know, people just don't know this. I'm sure, Lee, you face the same things that I do, that we get people into appointments and they first, they're like, why haven't I ever heard of this? Right. And then, you know, they get so excited and then they get kind of mad. Like, why haven't I heard about this? I just spent um, eight years, nine years trying to figure this out. And in a short amount of time, we made things much better and sometimes resolve things. So it's really important for people to understand that we have to look at the research we have to look at what really creates change and not just immediate change, but lasting change. And that's what neurofeedback is all about. Well, you know, and you, when you say what makes people really mad, I get this a lot because in Texas, it is not covered by insurance. And, you know, and some states are, are making a little more progress, but even on a national level, it's not that well covered. And that to me, people are like, why will, why will my insurance company pay for me to be on drugs for the rest of my life, but they won't pay for me to fix the problem. And I don't have an answer for that. Well, I mean, I do, but you know, then we start getting into conspiracy theory. (laughs) I mean, we have a sick care system. It's not a health care 
wellness-based system. And so, you know, it's pharma is very much integrated with both, you know, physical and mental health. It really dictates, you know, how we're treating people. So not one medical program in America does not receive pharma money. So there's partial funding in every single medical program. And that's such a conflict of interest. And so it dictates our medical care. And even in the mental health world, there's still a medical doctor on top of the pyramid who dictates really that course of treatment, right? You know, you get somebody who has suicidal ideation, which, you know, in this time of the pandemic is increasing dramatically. And a lot of therapists are like, I'm not dealing with that. I'm not going to assess that. They need to be assessed by psychiatrists, right? Right out of the gate. And then the answer is 100% of the time, it's, you know, they need meds. Um, I'm simplifying things and each situation is nuanced, but we are not looking to what actually helps people. And, and you know, when it comes to kids and medical treatment for mental health issues, 70% of the time, the medication is used is off label, which means there's no research to substantiate its efficacy. But yet, you know, we're handing it out like it's Skittles, you know? Well, and it's so confusing for families because they'll come in and they'll say, well, you know, if I get my Adderall from ABC Pharmacy, it affects my child this way. But if I get it from DEF, it affects it this way. And it's because it's all different generic compounds. And, you know, it's so confusing for families and how it's very, doesn't confuse me. It angers me that there's that much vulnerability that we're exposing our kids to. Yeah, I mean, absolutely, right? Where, you know, as you know, as well as I, Lee, you know, the brain is developing and there's critical developmental windows um, that we should be using to harness and create change for kids. And when we medicate them, we run a risk of creating change that isn't great in the brain. Um, you know, medications do have every single medication, psychiatric medication has a toxic effect. And, you know, that's well known. It's just a lot of times you know, nobody looks at the little insert and they don't, you know, they have to do sort of a risk benefit, you know, assessment. Like, are all these side effects that come with this medication worth this risk, right? And please know that I do believe that there, is, there are times when we should be using medication. The problem is it has become our first line of defense. And, you know, I've been in mental health 30 years. 30 years ago, it wasn't the first line of defense. And we didn't have the level of mental health issues 30 years ago we have now. We were recommending therapy and lifestyle changes and things like that. Um, and now we've, we've moved away from that. And, you know, people are in chronic stress. There's, it's not as simple as that. But there is an appropriate time for medication, but absolutely for children, it should never be first. And I don't think there's a parent in the world that would disagree with that. I think they're like, I want other options and nobody's telling me them. Absolutely. I think, you know, and I think I'm seeing a, a shift. The trend is going away from medication because so the stories, well, you know, I got on this medication so I could focus, but then I couldn't sleep at night. But then I got on this medication so I could sleep at night and then I can't get up in the morning. And I think, you know, that people are starting to say, hey, 
wait a minute, is this healthy? Absolutely, right? You know, they're starting to realize, wait a second, there is something else that I potentially could do. And, you know, how did people find us a long time ago? I mean, you know, I've been doing holistic integrative uh, work for forever. (laughs) You know, the entire time I've been practicing and, you know, I didn't do neurofeedback right away. It became in my journey. And how did I do is back then I went into the library and I looked at microfiche. Um, and, you know, once the Internet came in, I know people get so angry at Google MD. I think as much as Google bans things and is, is regulating and accepting money to um, this is common knowledge, people just Google it. Um, but <laughs> maybe you want to get on Bing. But Google accepts money to lower rankings of certain words. In 2019, they accepted money, $900 million, to lower the ranking of the word natural and 5-HTP from a pharma company. So, But as much as people hate Google, it's how they're getting research, like Google Scholar, and they're finding out, wow, like I've had a concussion and I have had anxiety and depression and I can't learn, have a terrible memory. And I've had this for six years. And on page two, I learned about something called neurofeedback and look at all this research about concussions. So they're really diving in there and, and finding their own options. Just like I found another option for my patient when he had a reaction He had a cardiac reaction to medication for ADHD. And, you know, the doctors were sort of like, well, there's really not much you can do to him. And I knew within a few months he would be labeled as having autism because nobody else knew where to put this kid in this box. He, he, to this day, was the most disconnected, impulsive kid I've ever seen with a 99 percentile IQ, completely not functional. And his mother went and got neurofeedback. She called me and said, do you know anything about neurofeedback? And I said, well, I did a research paper in my doctoral program, and that stuff works. And, and I said, there's nobody around here. And she said, I know. I'm going to drive an hour and 10 minutes each way for th- you know three times a week. And, and then I saw him, Lee, up in the center of town. He put his hand out and said, how you doing, Dr. Roseanne? And I literally turned and swore and said, what, what do you have this kid on? <laughs> and, <laughs> I want some. And she said, that's 40 sessions of neurofeedback. And I said, oh, my God. And I literally went and found somebody and got trained immediately. And I was like, I've got to, you know, I've got to help my patients. I mean, this is life changing. Well, you know, know? and I can I can second that because how I found neurofeedback when my one of my boys was in second grade, he got this was a long time ago. My boys are 33, but he got hit by a car and we were okay until the fifth grade In the fifth grade. He tells mom you're really going to have to help me well of course I'm going to help you what's up he's like well you know I can't pay attention anymore and I'm like well you know hun fifth grade's hard no mom I have ADHD I'm like I don't know what that is let me talk to the school counselor so I go and I talk to the counselor and I you know I explain that the situation so your kid doesn't have ADHD your kid's never failed anything your kid's never been a behavior problem your kid's lazy. I said, well, okay, my kid needs me to help him. What can I do? And she said, well, put him on Ritalin. I said, why would I do that? 
you just tell me they didn't have a problem. Why would I give my kids speed? And basically she said, that's all you can do. And I said, yeah, no. And that's, that's how I, I got into neurofeedback. And when I saw the changes and at that point I'd been in ICU once with brain injury. So we both experienced it together and I saw what it could do on a personal level. And that's, that was a career changer for me. Yeah. Right. And you know, here's the thing, you know, I think one of the biggest things that I, that I've struggled with, you know, for me, the medical community isn't as much of a struggle for me because it's the patients that come in are like, you know, it's hard to ignore when you see a kid that like couldn't even maintain eye contact and they're like putting their hand out and they're like, Hey, doctor route, like you can't ignore that. Right. And, um, I recently had somebody who came to me, brought the sibling to me and I hadn't seen them in a couple of years. And they, the, they had brought their daughter to me and they said, you know, Dr. Rosanna, I just want you to know right before we came to you, we had her tested. She was diagnosed with ADHD and then we had her retested and she no longer met the clinical criteria. Very cool. How cool is that? So I what did the neuropsychologist say? You know, it was a very fancy, well-known hospital that begins with a Y. And um, and she said to the parents, the only logical explanation here is this must be neurofeedback. Like we don't have any other explanation. She was pretty severe, right? So um, I was like, you guys have made my day. I know it made your, you know, lifetime. But they, so they brought the brother to me. They're like, he's a little anxious. We're going to get this fixed. But, you know, parents just, that gets out there. So over all these years of me doing the work on the local level, medical people are, for me, when they see the research, and you know how much research is around neurofeedback, they change their mind, Right. But what happens to patients is they go down this rabbit hole trying to find help. And by the time they find us, they're out of trust. You know, they don't believe this can work, right? Sometimes parents are like, I have no choice. I have to be here. Otherwise, my kid's going to be in a psych hospital. But on the day-to-day, a lot of times parents really have a hard time understanding this they're, they're more afraid of something that has not one research study that shows it can harm you than uphill, which could have a side effect of psychosis and suicidal ideation. They're more on the day to day. Most parents are more likely and willing to try a medication because that's what's been told to them. Right. Instead Absolutely. of. Yeah. So that's more I'm more worried that we're, we're not honing in and teaching parents to find their instinct, like to find their inner voice, like, you know, trust their judgment, you know, why wouldn't you do something that's evidence-based and totally safe? Well, you know, think about it on a cultural level. Doctors have been put, you know, on the holy grail. If the doctor told me to take this pill, then I'm going to take it. Well, and I'll ask the question, well, what is that pill supposed to do for you? Well, I don't know, but I'm taking it. And I'm like, well, are you seeing any change? Well, I don't know. I mean, it's just so 
accepted because the doctor said to do it. And right. that's in our culture. I mean, that's whereas you say, look at the research now, it's only in the last 10 years that Google, Google Scholar could pull up everything for us at our fingertips. Absolutely. Right. And that's what I try to say to parents. I definitely think there has been a shift. And I think the shift is there because the tipping point has come. I mean, we prior to the pandemic, 54.2 percent of kids 10 years before um, have a physical or a mental health problem. So what is it now? I mean, so I think people are just, you know, if anybody has any inclination, they're like, hmm, I read this leaflet and every side effect known to man is here, right? You know, I remember, you know, if anybody watches any morning TV, we were watching, I think like a week or two ago, my 10 year old and I were watching the morning news. I was looking for the weather and there happened to be a rapid succession as it always is of farmer commercials. And, you know, it was like, well, you can get cancer and you can get this. And so, you know, he's so intuitive. He was like, mom, I mean, if you're taking that and it could cause like cancer and this and that, and he's like, why would somebody take it? And I was like, Giancarlo, if every adult was as smart as you, I mean, <laughs> what am I going to say? <laughs> you know, but he knows enough to trust him to listen and sort of doubt things. That's the cool part about, I think, the generation we're raising and even the millennials, they're very distrustful. Um and they want more for themselves and they value health um, and they're willing to invest their time into to making lifestyle changes, which is pretty cool. Well, I think you're right. And I think, you know, I applaud the upcoming generation because they do want alternatives. They want options. They right. don't want to be told well, there's only one way to solve the problem. They want different options. So let's talk about what some of those options are for people. Yeah. So, you know, in my book, It's Going to Be Okay, I dive into the eight pillars of mental health and, and really dive in there. It has over 40 pages of research citations. So, you know, people can go and they can get the book on Amazon or go to it's going to be okay.com. Um, but there are a lot of options and we're huge fans of neurofeedback, but not every issue needs neurofeedback. Is there anybody who couldn't benefit from neurofeedback? I'm basically going to say no. Because thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah, I mean, it reduces stress. It optimizes your brain function. You know, it's why um, I get a lot of things done. It's made me super, super productive. Um, you know, and I've had kids and adults use it for things like enhancing their performance in athletics or test taking. Um, and there's just so many benefits. I say all the time, Lee, like if we had a little neurofeedback station. At the gas station, every time you look, got gas, you just did a little neuro, we would be so happy. <laughs> you're, you're right. Just hook me up for 10, you know. Hook me up for 10, right? Just do like, a, there's all kinds of neurofeedback. But, you know, what else can people do? And, you know, I often talk about um, a protocol I use called the REPS protocol. And REPS, the R is respirate, E is envision, P is positivity, and S is stress management. And the respirate is breathing, of course. And it all starts with breath work. So if there's one thing somebody can do, and it's pretty much of any age, there's no income, you know, there's no, there's no cost to it. It's a, but there is a commitment that is required. 
it is doing belly breathing or diaphragmatic breathing is the formal name. And there's all different kinds of diaphragmatic breaths. Um, but I like a four, seven, eight breath. So that's in for four, holding for seven, and then out for eight. Um, and when you do that, for if I'm sure you've talked about this, Lee, you go from a stressed out sympathetic dominant to a relaxed parasympathetic state. And when we do that, our nervous system is able to, you know, respond to information appropriately. We can think, we can make decisions more readily, and we can take action differently. And so you can hear how that translates into every facet of life, personal, right, uh, academic or work life. You know, there's a major payoff when we regulate our nervous system. And so breath work is that anchor for everything. Well, you know, I, I talk breath work. One of the first things that I say to a client is let's talk about your breathing. I'll practice the breathing with them in my office. I'll give them a sheet on breathing guidelines. I'll hook them up to the M wave in my office. Oh yeah. And, but I'll ask them to practice on their own at home. Less than 10% will do that on their own. Yeah. What am I doing wrong? Right. I mean, I don't know how else to, to stress the importance of it. And people, they're happy to, to sit with me in my office and breathe. And they're happy to, you know, get on the M wave, but for them to take that independent action, it just, and what I tell everybody is when you're at a red light, this is how I learned to breathe. A cell phone had just came out. And so I'm dating myself here. But I wanted to learn not to be on my phone all the time. And I found when I was at a red light, I would pull my phone out and check it. I said, okay, I'm not going to do that. Every time I come to my red light, I'm going to work on my breathing. And I really, it worked for me. And I've used it probably for the last 20 years. And, and, you know, it, and, you know, the start of the conversation about breath work was, you know, why do people, you know, not do it? And it's really about not creating the space for it, right? And so in my reps protocol starts with breath work and then E is visualizing and P is positivity. And so when people are really successful and they get things done, they visualize it, right? They say positive things about it. And so when it comes to routine, what you want to do is you want to set that space. And that's what that S is about, is, is stress management. And it's just 10 minutes a day. Like somebody's like, I don't have time to go to the, you know, get a massage every week. And I'm like, no, that's just gravy. But you've got to create that space and create a habit, whether, you know, we use devices like a, a timer on our phone or you know, your nervous system isn't going to regulate on its own unless you practice it. And everybody, including Lee and I, are practicing it every day. And it, I think it's one of the most important. And it's so basic. Don't we have to breathe? Right. So let's do it right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, you know, I think that is a very important pillar. And, and I think the, putting it with the positivity and I use affirmations a lot in my practice. And, you know, used to many, many years ago, I would write affirmations for people. And then I realized, you know, they need to write their own affirmations because those affirmations, they need to resonate from them, not from me. 
And I found the coolest app called Think Up. And that app will give you different categories where you can go in and you can select, let's say I want some affirmations around anxiety or gratitude. Um, And you can find some that resonate with you. You can go in, you can pick the background music that you want to play. You record those in your own voice and then you listen to them. But when you listen to them and the subconscious hears that in your own voice, it resonates. It gets attention. Absolutely. Right. You know, and there's so many ways. The beauty of what we do is there's so many ways as I like to say, to skin a cat, right? And there's so many evidence-based ways to create this change in your nervous system. And, you know, whether you're an adult doing this for yourself, whether you're a parent who's trying to create this for your for your child, there's just so many accessible ways. And, and neurofeedback and biofeedback are just two different tools uh, that certainly, if you have clinical issues, I wish everybody just automatically used right out of the gate. You know, and instead of people being so broken down, you know, Lee, when they get to us. Right. So, I mean, I work with people all over the world remotely and it's it's I'm excited that I have clients in Hong Kong. And but I'm sad that, you know, I have a client coming from France this summer because she's like, literally, it's easier for me to fly to America and have you do a brain map. And I'm like, okay, come on, and we'll send you back with some equipment. But I want people to be empowered to create that change for themselves. And I think that's, you know, that's that's the best thing, that that it is empowering. And it's so validating. I can't tell you how many times a young child, 9 or 10, which is more of an adolescent, but anyway, when they're going over the brain map with the mother, the kid will look at me and say, Miss Lee, can I have that? And I'm looking at the mom like, um, and the mom's like, okay. And I'm like, sure. What are you going to do with that? Are you going you gonna to put it on the refrigerator? Oh, no, no. Well, what are you going to do with that? I have a special place that I keep everything that's special to me. Because it validates. You know, they instead of feeling I'm stupid, I'm dumb. This is what's causing the problem. It's not me. It's just my brain needs to work a little bit better. Yes, absolutely. You know what I mean? Right. We have to stop looking at it as that there's something wrong with us and instead look at it as an opportunity to enhance and optimize. Right. You know, and uh, that's the beauty of what neurofeedback does. Like it just brings a shine to every aspect of how a person behaves and thinks and processes. Well, you know, you're exactly right. And and my the three biggest groups I work with, anxiety, depression, and ADHD, but you touch some groups that I don't, and the Limes and the Pandas, and those are, you know, those I really, I have had very little experience with, and so what I'd like to do, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, I kind of like to learn more about that, what you do and how you do it, because I know there's a lot of people, I'm surprised at how many people really are touched by limes and pandas. So stay with us. We'll come back from break and you can learn more all about that. We'll be back after these messages. Have you heard? 
The pages of American Patchwork and Quilting magazine come to life on our new weekly online radio show, American Patchwork and Quilting. Join Pat Sloan, our blogging and quilt designer host, as she talks about the latest trends, ideas, and inspirations. Her guests include quilt pattern designers, authors, quilt shop owners, and our editors, all quilters just like you. Call in with your questions. Get quilting tips from industry experts. Learn about free patterns. Hear behind-the-scenes stories from our magazines, American Patchwork and Quilting, Quilt Sampler, and Quilts and More. Get the scoop on free stuff and find out more about the best independent quilt shops in North America. To listen to a live show, tune in Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Just log on to allpeoplequilt.com radio. To hear past shows, go to iTunes and search for American Patchwork and Quilting Radio. We hope you'll join us because we know that quilting changes everything. It's words you never heard. English isn't always the most expressive language in the world. Many other languages have words that are much more descriptive in their meaning. University of East London psychologist Tim Lomas compiled words from other countries that don't translate or have an English equivalent. Heiskos is a Norwegian word that means sitting in front of a crackling fireplace enjoying the warmth. Gula is Spanish for the desire to eat simply for the taste. And shamomachamo is a Georgian word that means eating past the point of satiation due to sheer enjoyment. Feierament is a German word for the festive mood at the end of a working day. To quote Mark Twain, the difference between the right word and the nearly right word is the difference between lightning and lightning bug. It's marching day. I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words-you-never-heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. We're back. Now here is your host, Lee Richardson. We're back, and we're going to touch on some new subjects, some some work that I'm interested in learning more about, and that is how Dr. Roanne works with people that have Lyme and Pandas and how she creates successful, lasting change. Yeah, I mean, let's talk about this because, you know, I've been working with people with Lyme disease for 20 Four years. Um, I'm in the northeast part of the United States, and it's really like an epidemic level. Lee, like you go outside and you walk on a lawn for any length of period, you're going to have ticks on you. I mean, it's they're very aggressive. So Lyme disease is incredibly common, and I honestly don't know of somebody that doesn't care about or love somebody who doesn't have Lyme disease. So, you know, I lived in Connecticut for 20 years and I had Lyme disease. That's so I have a personal interest in this as well. Yes. And I don't think I knew you lived in Connecticut for 20 years. I lived. I know you're in Richfield. I lived in Brookfield. Oh, wait a second. We'll talk (laughs) after. Okay. (laughs) Um, But um, so the world is small. The world is so small, it's not even funny. I thought you lived in Long Island. So, um, but, so, you know, it is, it's, it's there. And tick-borne illness is in every continent except Antarctica. So people think, oh, I'm in Texas. Oh, I'm in Florida. You know, it's too hot. There's no ticks. No, there, there are. And people from Texas and Florida fly up pre-pandemic. They would fly up and see me all the time um, because they couldn't find a way to help them, right? And so... 
Let's talk about tick-borne illness. Let's talk about PANS and PANDAS. I'm hoping the world will, will merge, the two will merge. But PANS and PANDAS and autoimmune encephalopathy are three separate diseases that have the same symptoms for the most part. And PANS and PANDAS have a sudden onset of a mental health or a cognitive um, issue, processing issue, attentional issue, or a decline. And autoimmune encephalopathy is a slower onset, a waxing and waning. And all three start with an infection or a toxic trigger, which causes a misdirected immune response. And the body starts attacking itself and creates all this inflammation. And then voila, you see this range of symptoms, right? So and, and pandas is strep, pans is any tick-borne, I mean, any infection or toxic trigger. And, and it ticks, as I said, carry everything, carry bacteria, they carry viruses and carry parasites. Um, and so you can see things like a sudden onset of OCD, a sudden onset of a vocal or a motor tick, um, rage, anxiety, depression, a loss of skills like uh, you can have struggle with um, urine, urination, either bladder control, particularly at night, or high frequency. Um, you know, separation anxiety is a big one. And even though the P in PANS and PANDA stands for pediatric, it now does not have to have a pediatric onset. It can occur at any age. And I'm so glad because I get adults who get a tick-borne illness or um, things like COVID <laughs> and get a sudden onset of OCD or psychosis even. So it is, you know, medically sourced. And, you know, I have been working with, like I said, for 24 years and with PANS and PANDAS, you know, probably as long as that, we just didn't call it that. It really has been in the last 10 to 12 years that PANS and PANDAS has really come to the forefront. And a bunch of just tough mamas have organized themselves in the PANS and PANDAS community. And you know what? I feel like they've gotten further than the Lyme community on its own because these moms are like, this is, this is ridiculous. I had a kid who the day before was totally normal and now my kid's crazy. And moms say that. They'll say, oh, my God, it was like my kid got a demonic possession because for some kids, they could have no pre-existing anything. And they all of a sudden com become completely different and they're, they get hijacked overnight. As a parent, I can't imagine how terrifying that must be. It's not only terrifyingly, it's what you see, what's even more terrifying is the absolute negligence by medical and mental health providers around these medical problems that create mental health issues. I, I had somebody a couple of weeks ago who came to me, what a beautiful, beautiful young woman, nine years um, trying to get help. And multiple, multiple times she would go, their parents would say, don't you think this is pants? And they would say, no, 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 no. And she was like a textbook case, like totally 100% normal kid, no history, anything, um, gets a tick-borne illness and overnight develops OCD, right? It's like classic, right? Not everybody gets OCD, but, you know, when it's like something happens overnight, people, like you better be like, no, there's got to be something medical here, right? Not everybody's got schizophrenia, you know, and some people do, and sometimes it can be overnight, but 
you know, this is the standard of how people are treated. I mean, I've had kids go in and out of a psych hospital and in less than five minutes, I can say, wait a second, do you have this, this or this? I'm like, okay, you've got to take foreign illness, especially when they have things like there's, there's a couple strains that are very, of tick-borne illness are very closely tied with mental health issues. And we know this through lots of research. Um, but one is called Bartonella and Bartonella will produce a rash. They call them striations that looks like stretch marks and they typically occur on a, on the trunk. And if you're somebody who hasn't lost weight and you have stretch marks, Right. And then you have all these mental health issues. So, you know, I remember one summer, I think the summer before COVID, I had had three young men in about a month where they had been in and out of psych hospitals. And I said, hey, you got stretch marks? And, they, you know, they're like, yeah, let me show you. You know, they pull up their shirt. And, you know, in one case, this poor young man, oh, Lee, his mother was in the hospital, you know, was with him in the hospital. And the, the psych hospital said, you know, I think this might be Lyme disease. And they refused to do the testing. They wind up bringing to the pediatrician and the pediatrician said, oh, it's not Lyme disease because people incorrectly interpret uh, testing. Plus there's no test. Um, it's a clinical diagnosis. There's testing that gives us information, but the bacteria is very evasive. So it's a frustrating process. We are not doing right by people with PANS and PANDAS and Lyme disease. And there's really no excuse for it. So someone comes to your office. Yeah. And how do you help them? Where do you start? Yeah. So, you know, I get so many people all over the world who come to me for PANS and PANDAS and Lyme. And, you know, what, first of all, how do I help them? So I get people who are getting phenomenal medical care, sometimes not right away, most of the time, never right away. And because I'm in the Northeast, we have some of the top people in the world who treat tick-borne illness in the Northeast. So if people can afford it, they can get great care, but yet many people don't get better and they're in chronic states. So when people come to me, I know what the barriers are for healing about um, Lyme disease. And I also know what fl flares are, which in the world of infectious disease triggers, um, anything can trigger sort of an agitation, a setback, like a relapse. Um, we call it a flare in our world. And so, you know, I have these protocols, right? I have this trademark program called the flare care protocol. And, but how do I help them? So here's what we know. Okay. And this is literally uh, science here, guys. It's called psychoimmunology. And you can Google psychoimmunology and you're going to be like, holy, holy, holy moly. Why didn't somebody tell me about this? <laughs> so with infectious disease, why do some people who are getting great care don't get better and they have psychiatric problems or cognitive problems, and, you know, word processing problems, all kinds of things, memory issues. Um, it's because there are barriers to healing. And number one, with a stress hyperactivated nervous system that's in a sympathetic dominant state, the body will not allow you to heal, okay? If you're stress activated, which hello, if you've had a chronic medical issue and you feel like garbage, you're gonna eventually get to a stress activated state. And this is not a mindset issue. This is a central nervous system component. So that is a barrier. We know improper detoxification, people, genetic mutations are on the rise. That's a barrier. And then if there's a prior history of trauma, these are the three greatest obstacles from healing for any 
medical problem. This is it, guys. I just gave you the science, right? And it's in my book. It's going to be okay. And guess what? I show you how to unravel that. So when people come to me, how do I help them? So one, I help them with the diagnosis, right? So you've been going down rabbit hole after rabbit hole after rabbit hole. You know, this is my jam. This is my power, right? I know exactly what the brain is supposed to do. We, we know what it is. If there really is a medical issue, then we connect you to a medical provider that can treat you, right? So important. And then my job is to use my tools and my resources to help regulate the nervous system. Because remember, if we don't get you out of that stress-activated state, it's not going to happen in talk therapy. In fact, it's probably going to make it worse. Um, talk therapy has its place. But if you're hyper stress activated, the way the brain works is your frontal lobes are not accessible. So you're literally trying to talk to somebody and create change when their frontal lobes are like, I'm not having any part of that. So we've got to approach everything with neuroscience in mind. And that's really where I come in is I walk them through and give them all the hacks to help the nervous system get back online and then create that change that is lasting. Well, you know, and I think that the world is starting to understand what neuroscience is and how it can be applied. And I don't think 15 years ago, the world had any idea. I don't think they did either, you know, and, you know, even though that science has been there, right. You know, people probably already always fall out of their chair when you tell them like neurofeedback is over 50 years old. Yeah. You know, <laughs> like I had this dad was like, this is new, new treatment. I was like, it's over 50 years old. He's like, what? And I'm like, tens of thousands of research studies. He's like, what? I'm like 3000 peer reviewed studies. He's like, oh my God, like, this is terrible. I'm like, I know. And I'm like, and you're only here because your kid, you had nowhere else to go. And he's like, yeah. I'm like, okay, we're going to be good. You know, but because of COVID, you know, what's so fascinatingly is that People are having open conversations about mental health. Like we got a referral last week and uh, a dad called, right? I love when dads call because like they only call 5% of the time. But when they do call, you know, they, they get science. They're, they're more comfortable with leading with the logic, right? And they're like, okay, well, the science says this. So this dad was like, hey, my golf buddy, I was telling him about my kid. And he said, hey, you got to go to Dr. Rowe. She get your kid's brain working, you know? And the dad was like, that's exactly what I need. Everybody's trying to talk to my kid about feelings, but his brain isn't working. And I was like, exactly. So appreciate that, you know? I just love these conversations that people are having. I mean, that's how people find you, right, Lee? Absolutely. And, mm -hmm. and you know, even books like The Body Keeps Score, mm -hmm. they talk about neurofeedback in there. And people will say, hey, I read this book, you know? And I'm, I'm like, mm -hmm, the body keeps scoring. They're like, yeah, how'd you know? <laughs> and I think that people, people are talking. And, you know, my goal for 2021 is really to be the pioneer, the, the pioneer spirit behind creating an awareness around mental health. I wrote my first book, Turn Your Brain On to Get Your Game On, for one reason, to tell people it is okay to not be okay and so many times absolutely you know, it, but so many times the first step that that I do is a consultation and usually it's in person or, or the phone or now zoom now zoom 
but I would be talking to people and I'd say, wow, you know, it sounds like you're a little depressed. And immediately I would see them look at the floor. Oh, no. Oh, no. Not, not, not depression. Or I would say, wow, you know, it sounds like you have some anxiety. And I would see those shoulders become earrings. Oh, oh, no. I'm not anxious. You know, and I'm like, hey, man, it's okay to not be okay. Everybody is going to experience what I call a little brain dysregulation at some point in their life. Yes, absolutely. Right. And, you know, it's about taking the time to take care of yourself and stop running on empty. Right. Oh, self-care. Self-care. You know, but, but what, when I say self-care, so many people go, oh, I've tried meditation. Yeah. I'm like, well, self-care can be silence. Self-care, if you're nine years old, can be climbing a tree. Self-care can be cooking. It's not just meditation. It's finding what works for you, what gives you that feeling of peace and Absolutely. relaxation. Yeah. I mean, cooking is very much a place for me that I'm able to let go of my thoughts. And I, lo- I just love that you can, in an hour, right, you know, go from one, ex- you know, having ingredients and then at the end of the hour having, a, at least in my house, a gourmet meal. So, you know, I love that. I love being able to see something. There's something so relaxing and cathartic for me about cooking, you know, and I love to do it with my boys. And they love to cook. And even my teenager will, you know, do it with me and be happy, you know, which is cool. Well, it is cool. And I think that used to be when we said self-care, we'd say, oh, bottle of wine and Netflix. Right. And now now we've learned self-care is a lot more than that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, and and it really, you know, the other part about self-care is the research says that at least with meditation, but we can extrapolate that to other things as little as 10 minutes a day creates lasting change in the brain if we consistently do it for at least 40 days. So, you know, 40 days isn't that long, people. And, you know, you again, you can set a, a clock to it. And I think sometimes you have to set a clock to it. For because, sure. you know, the more accountable that you can make yourself with everything you try to do, the more successful you're going to be. A- absolutely, right? And this is about, you know... It's always so fascinating. You said that with biofeedback and breath work, people don't want to do it as much as they want to do neurofeedback because neurofeedback, you tap into the subconscious and that's what's running the show. So you create this change so quickly by tapping into the subconscious, which is so fascinating. But, you know, we have so many tools available to us. It's just a matter of like, are you using it? You know, it's like your treadmill. Are you using it as a clothes rack or are you getting on it? You know, (laughs) well, let's talk about a couple more of those tools. I'm interested in the Get Unstuck program. Yeah. So we have this awesome thing that we do and the Get Unstuck program is really the video version of my book. It's going to be okay, And we've paired it with um, a community called Raising Successful Kids Community. And we are really teaching families how to cultivate, you know, confidence and resilience in their kids so that they can, you know, pay attention more and how about get along with other people better, 
you know, we want, we want our kids to be successful in, in little ways and big ways. And it, and it starts with these eight pillars of mental health. So my get unstuck program is really this great video resource with downloads and it, it is the companion to my book. It's going to be okay. Well, you know, I think that that's people do, you mentioned confidence and I've got two grad degrees, never had a class in confidence And going back to my story about my son, what really got my attention was I noticed that he had lost his self-confidence. And I thought, I've got to do something about this. I have got, and there's nothing, it can't be taught. It has to come from within. Right, right. You know what I mean? So um, it does have to be taught and it has to be cultivated, right? So I always talk about cultivating confidence because you don't just go buck up, buddy, and you're going to be confident. It's through experiences. You know, I was always a really confident person. And sometimes that, you know, and it still sometimes gets in the way of relationships because it freaks people out. And, you know, one of the ways that my parents cultivated confidence is they gave me opportunities for autonomy and they let me make mistakes. They totally let me make mistakes. They helped me talk about it and problem solve. And, you know, it really let me know that it was okay to be independent. And it was really okay to make mistakes, which, you know, is why I get stuff done and why I do things, why I'm like, people like, how are you on TV all the time? And I'm like, because guess what? I'm believing what I say. I don't expect myself to be perfect. I'm as real as real gets. And you just got to do it. And I think so many people get, you know, have analysis paralysis and, you know, it all stems with confidence and that comes from failure and we don't want to let our kids fail anymore. And we're having a whole, you know, the last few generations have no ability to cope with stress. Well, see, and I see confidence at ties into vulnerability because shame fear of that disconnection that's a that's a big as much a part of being vulnerable as trust is you know in order to connect you have to show up right right absolutely you have to show up you have to be there you have to be present you know and that's important you know and confidence can be as simple as being the one that that's willing to say i love you first or you know, the one that's willing to do something that there's no guarantees, but I'm going to do it. Or someone that will invest in a relationship that may or may not work out. To me, those are signs of a confident and a vulnerable person. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And confidence people, you know, they're not small minded. Like they know how to lift other people because they feel good about themselves. Absolutely. You know, and I think that we sometimes when we're not confident, we go numb. We don't want to feel those hard feelings. Mm-hmm. We just it's easier to go numb. Um, you know, I think that one thing that I've seen in the last year is that uncertain it's harder for people to take that uncertainty and make it certain. And I think that's partly because there's a confusion on purpose you know our purpose is is, can change sure 
but to me, you know, if you can give, if you can create one thing within your child and, and you talked about how your parents did it with you, it's given them, you know, they gave you the courage to be who you are with your whole heart. Yeah. And, you know, they also, my parents are like, uh, uh, were, are amazing entrepreneurs and immigrants from Italy. And, you know, they, they taught me there was never a limit on anything. They were like, you can do and be anything you want. You just got to work for it, you know? And they also taught me really honestly, really, really honestly, they were like, don't give a crap what anybody thinks. And that's pretty darn freeing. <laughs> they were never like, don't, you know, be rude to meet people. They were always like, no, you always be polite. But like, you know, somebody tells you something, you tell them to go to hell, you know, like you, you, you know yourself, don't be fooled, don't, you know, be smart. And, you know, it really was um, allowed me to be just this ridiculously strong woman. And I think that, you know, we are in a place where we're teaching our kids to, you know, not be thinkers. We're teaching them to be followers, right? Because we want them to be good little soldiers and not get in trouble at school. And we don't want our kids to get in trouble in school. But we don't, we're not cultivating creativity. We're not cultivating confidence. We're not honing in on strengths that are not academic. And so, you know, we're, we, we have so much more to do. And what's happening is our kids are struggling. Well, you know, I think you've shared such great information during this show, but the last few minutes, to me, the real takeaways from this show have been in the last few minutes. And, and, and that is giving, understanding what confidence can do and what you as a parent can do to help create that confidence. And, and I think when you see it develop in your child, it develops within you. Oh, absolutely. You know, and our kids are looking to us and, you know, confidence also develops from coping skills and having a good set of skills. And our parents, you know, we can model that for ourselves. It helps us to inoculate from stress. And, you know, I know parents are having a hard time right now. I, I, I'm a parent too. And holy moly, my kids are not perfect. And, you know, we have to take care of ourselves. We have to be kind to ourselves um, and we need to do that not just for ourselves, but because we are role modeling that for our kids. And that is going to be their foundation for how they manage stress is how they watch their parents. That's going to be their foundation for the rest of their lives. And there's no way around it. Stress is a, a big part of everyday life. Doesn't matter how much money you have. Doesn't matter where you live. You're going to experience stress in your, right. daily, in your daily life. You know, you just are. So we've got just a couple of minutes left, and I'd like for you to kind of quickly tell people how they can find you if they'd like to learn more about what you do. Yeah. So you can find me, Dr. Roseanne, everywhere, and that's D-R-R-O-S-E-A-N-N, -N, and that's .com at my website or Dr. Roseanne on Instagram and TikTok and YouTube. And you can get my book. It's going to be okay on my web, through my website or on Amazon. 
great because there's so much, you know, I'm, I'm always amazed at how much we can do. I mean, we share the common opinion. Neurofeedback is a great, everybody would benefit, but not everybody could do it. No. And people need to know that there are things that they can do within their, their own home. There's information that they can access. There's videos. You mentioned videos that they can watch. No matter how you process information, it's out there. Check out Dr. Roseanne. On behalf of Lee Richardson and the Brain Performance Center, we want to thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more episodes like this, visit us on iTunes, Google Play, Toginet, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, 